If you got a Bible, turn to Proverbs 3. Title is The Lord Will Direct Your Paths. And we're going to look at the first 10 verses of Proverbs 3. And we'll pray first. Father, thank you once again, Lord, that you'll open your word up to our minds and our hearts, Lord, and you'll give us a heart to walk in your truth. And I thank you that you'll do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Proverbs 3, verse 1. Solomon writes, My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. I'm sure all of us either have done it or have had it done where you have to have the dreaded traditional mom and dad lecture, you know, sit down, I need to talk to you. My dad was the one in my family that did that. My mom was kind of more or less the one, just go to your room and stay there till you apologize. But my dad would be the one that he would kind of talk with us. And I always appreciated the fact that he did that. I didn't maybe necessarily like everything he said, but he would talk and would give me a chance to say my side of the story. And I did always kind of appreciate that. Those talks that you have, you know, none of us really knows how long we have on this earth, do we? I mean, we may have years and even the youngest person in here may only have a month. That's one thing we're not promised is tomorrow. So I wonder, what would you want to say to one of your loved ones or your children or a good friend or whatever if you knew you only had a few days left? Or what if you only had a few hours left? I wouldn't want to waste my opportunity if that was the case, talking about some sports event or the latest fixer-upper show, you know. David's words, his last words to his son, Solomon, are very similar to what we find here at the beginning of these first four verses of what we find here in Proverbs 3. Here's what David said in 2 Kings 2.2. It says, now the days of David drew near that he should die. So he knows he's getting ready to die. And it says, he charged Solomon, son, we need to have a talk. Charged Solomon, his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. And then here's what the gist of what he tells him. He says, and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Isn't that interesting? That's what he tells him. His last words of advice to him, it has nothing to do with governing the kingdom because he'll be able to govern the kingdom if he walks in the ways of the Lord. But he tells him, walk in the ways of the Lord, your God. Make sure he's your God. Keep his statutes, commandments, judgments, testimonies. And he tells him, so that you may prosper and all that you do. And that word prosper there, it doesn't mean so he can have all this income and money and all that. That word really means to be successful. He's saying just walk in the ways of the Lord and you'll be successful. And that's what we find here in these first four verses of Proverbs 3. 
Solomon, though, is writing this to his son, and, and thus on to us. It's the Lord talking to us, really. But 21 times Solomon says, 21 times he uses the expression, my son, here in Proverbs. My son, hear the instruction of your father. My son, if sinners entice you, don't consent. My son, give me your heart. My son, fear the Lord and the king. So it's a father, I've said this before, speaking to a son to help him navigate through life. That's what we have going on here in Proverbs. This is God our Father speaking to us. He's given us counsel as his children. And if he's saying if we will follow his counsel, there will be, just like David told Solomon, you follow the Lord. You do what's written in the law of Moses. You follow his word and there will be benefits or rewards. So here's the, what we need to understand. We don't obey the Lord. We don't follow Proverbs. It's not written so that we can do these things and get in God's favor or experience his love. He's writing to my son, someone that's already in the family. It's written to the redeemed. Proverbs said this too, it's not written to the unsaved or the unregenerate, but it's written to those that already have known and experienced the love of God, the redeeming love of God. And it's written so you're my child, you're my son, I'm going to help navigate you through life. This is what this book is all about. And I trust you all have been reading Proverbs some since we've been talking about it. This past week, this is the second time where what I've read in Proverbs has helped me in a specific issue I had to deal with. I mean, it really helped me out and kind of had to get my thinking straightened down a little bit. And that's what it'll do for you. You think about it here. This is how we got to live. If we want to please God, he's given this to us. He's graciously given us the wisdom of the ages. The wisdom of God Almighty is here. I mean, that is no small thing, really. What I would say is there is no reason, based on what we have here in Proverbs, and I would say the whole Bible, there's no reason for any of God's children to make a mess out of their lives, is there? Should any of the redeemed live a ruined life? Should we ruin the, the gift that God has given us of this life? I mean, he's given us this to direct us through. You look at people in the world and they get in all kinds of jams and messes and things that it's like, I wouldn't know where to begin to tell you how to get out of this mess you're in. And that's what God's wisdom will do. It will keep us from getting in those kind of jams. Won't it? We can avoid that. People in the world, it's like, I don't know where to go, what to do. We've got somewhere to go and the Holy Spirit to guide us to tell us what to do as we study his word. He's blessed us with a great light. We talked about this Sunday, but he's blessed us with a great light to guide our paths. And that's what Proverbs is. If you just turn over to chapter 4 and just look real quick at verse 18, and that's what it's saying there. Look at 418. It says, but the path of the just is like the shining sun. There's that bright light to show that path. And it says, and it shines even brighter so as you go down that path, it shines even brighter unto the perfect day. But in contrast, verse 19, the way of the wicked, it's not that way. It's like what? It's what we talked about Sunday, darkness. And they don't even know because it's like I told you, I'm walking around that hotel room. They can't see it. They don't even know what makes them stumble, but they do stumble, don't they? <laughs> I did when I was in the world. I stumbled all the time. Still do some now, but we have the Lord to help pick us up, don't we, when we stumble? We do that quite a bit. Basically, going back to Proverbs 3, this whole chapter sums up what Jesus said in Matthew 22. They came and asked him, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, 
mind, soul, and strength. And he said, the second is like unto it, to love thy neighbor as thyself. And what we have here, the first 10 verses is basically how to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and strength. It's saying he is the main source of wisdom. It's him. It's all about him because we have their trust in the Lord, fear the Lord, and honor the Lord. It's all about the Lord. And then at the end, it talks there about how wisdom will help you deal with others, other people. And sandwiched in between, that's verses 21 to 35, and sandwiched in between verses 11 to 20, tell us how much we should cherish the wisdom that God gives us. No matter how it comes, it may come through chastening, but whatever, it is the most precious thing you'll ever have in this life, the wisdom that God gives us. I want to look at these first 10 verses tonight. The big heading for this is that true wisdom, it centers around the Lord. Like I said, in verse 5, if you just kind of guide your eyes down through verse 5, it says, you should trust in the Lord. And in verse 7, it says, do not be wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord. And then at the beginning of verse 9, it says we should do what? We should honor the Lord. Here's what he's telling us. You take God out of the equation and everything falls apart. Because there's no true wisdom when the source of all true wisdom is left out of the picture. So the Lord has got to be first and foremost. That's what he's saying. What is this that we're supposed to learn when we look at these first four verses? And what it tells us is right there in verse 1, he says, My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. My law and my commands. So they're not just any law. It's not just any commands. But we're told there the Lord is speaking. He's saying that is my law. Those are my commands. It's the Lord's law. Let me say it this way. The universe is run by God's law or laws, however you want to say it. So it's laws or principles he set in place. That's how our universe works. He can override those laws, those laws of nature that we call them anytime he wants to. And the reason is, is because they're his laws. So when he overrides a law of nature, we call that a miracle. It's not what typically would happen. For instance, a man can't walk on water, but not only did Jesus walk on water, Peter walked on water by faith. There was the law of faith was overriding the law of gravity, wasn't it? God can override his law anytime he wants to, and that's why it says nothing's impossible. Because he's got, he put these laws in place in our universe, the way things run. He keeps them working, but he and his sovereign power can override it. We get sick, we get whatever, and there is a natural way things go. And if you're just going to look at it that way, well, then we're just subject to that, aren't we? But divine healing is saying what? He's saying God's going to come in there and he's going to override. Nature will not take its course. It's going to supernaturally be superseded, isn't it? And just like Peter had to have faith, he had to trust in the Lord that that power would be there. It's the same with us. We have to trust that that healing power will be there for us, don't we? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. It's got to be faith, but God's faithful. We're trusting somebody that's trustworthy. So ordinarily, though, the point I want to make is he can override his laws anytime he wants to, but ordinarily he doesn't. And that's the reason your cell phone works. And that's the reason your car starts. And that's the reason that leaves will fall off the tree at a certain time every year and then they'll come back at the same time because those laws are in place. He's established laws to run the universe because this world would be chaos. 
if we didn't have laws like that. And all the engineers in our church, you know, we've got quite a few anymore. We've got all these highly educated engineers. They would be doing what I used to do. They'd be painters if there wasn't these established laws of mathematics and physics. If we cooperate with these laws of nature, we're blessed, aren't we? You plant a seed in good soil, you water it, weed it, keep the animals away, and eventually you're going to be able to eat a nice, juicy ear of corn, because I did it last night. That's what will happen. But if we violate the laws of nature, what's going to happen? We're going to be destroyed, aren't we? The law of gravity is our friend. It's what keeps us glued on the earth that we don't go flying out of here. It's our friend, but it's not our friend if we decide we're going to do a swan dive out of a 10-story building. God has laid out in his creation certain principles to live by. We cooperate with those principles, we'll be blessed, we fight against them, we'll be cursed. It works that way spiritually. We have in Galatians 6, he says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, and he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So the law of sowing and reaping that we see in nature, he's saying that also works spiritually for us. But to the point of what we're going to talk about tonight, the laws that govern the kingdom of God and how we're supposed to live are not always the same as the laws that govern an ungodly world. For instance, we can look in here and give an example in Proverbs, turn over to chapter 11 and verse 24. And here he's given us one of his laws. Proverbs eleven twenty four. it says, There is one who scatters, yet increases more, and there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. So sometimes God's laws are counterintuitive, aren't they? <laughs> and that's what we're going to get to, like I said, in verse 5. We have to sometimes trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not to our own understanding, because it seems like if you're throwing all your money away and giving it away, how in the world are you ever going to have anything? And God says, he that scatters and is generous, though, is going to have more than enough. Isn't that what we just read? There is one who scatters, and yet, even though you're scattering, you increase more, is what it says there on verse 14. So that's where we have to trust that what he says in this book it may not be our understanding of how things ought to work, but he's telling you if we have to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, and it will work. Back to Proverbs 3. When we look down through these verses, these first four verses in Proverbs 3, he puts many incentives ahead of us to follow what he's saying here. He says length of days, long life, peace, grace, or favor, it's the same, and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Here's the first thing I want to point out there. How should we look at this promise of length of days? How should we look at that length of days? Because there's been many a godly man or woman that has died young. The Lord Jesus followed everything here perfect, and he was dead at age 33. Stephen died a young man. There's been a lot of godly men. George Whitfield, Spurgeon, a man named Robert Murray McShane, they all died young. And they were very godly men. And yet you'll see rich people that'll live and die up into their 90s. That kind of seems like, well, is this really true or not? Well, one thing we have to understand, that expression that is there in verse 2 where it says length of days, 
That same expression, those same words are used of the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, in Isaiah 53, which we know is, is the great passage about the cross. In Isaiah 53.10, it says this, it says, speaking of Jesus, it says, he shall see his seed, and it says, he shall prolong his days. Well, he didn't live a prolonged life, I wouldn't say. At 33, there are a lot of people lived a lot older than that, died at 33 years old. What does that mean? He prolonged his days. To prolong your days means to live long years is what it's talking about. And I think in Jesus's case, that refers to him rising from the dead. But more than that, you know, he's living eternally now, okay? He is prolonging his days. But not only that, I believe that eternal life that he's experienced, we experience that same eternal life. I mean, we will never die in that sense. We may die physically, but we will never die in that sense. So we're called to prolong his days, so to speak, because we are his body. We touch others in his name. In that sense, his days are being prolonged. He's not only living eternally in heaven, he's alive forevermore, but we're also prolonging his days in that way. It's true. I would say it's a true principle that if you live a godly life, According to the principles of the Bible, you will generally live a long life. That is a general truth, a general principle that's being presented here. Paul said godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. Why would that be? Well, I've seen sinners that by the age of 40, they look like they have been through the ringer and they look like they're about 70 Because a godly person is not going to be getting into all the things the world is, that hard life of drinking, drugs, worry, anxiety, anger. They just give in to their anger. They give in to all their fears. That's why all this medication is available for everybody. And it shortens their lifespans. And a godly person, hey, you're living a godly life, not involved in that stuff. It's going to extend your lifespan. But what God is saying here through these promises is you're going to live a full satisfying life no matter how long it is and also I think when he's saying to prolong his days I think he's saying your influence will continue long after you are gone you'll see your days prolonged I mentioned Robert Murray McShane that man only lived to be 29 years old does anybody in here has anyone ever read anything about Robert Murray McShane nobody has well that's you know you really should because uh, he was a very godly man His holy life, if you ever read his biography that's written by Andrew Bonner, I believe, his holy life, his prayer life, his sermons, they have gone way past his 29 years and the influence that he had not only on his congregation there, but just down through the century, thousands of people, including myself and Starla, I guess, have benefited from reading not only his sermons, but about his life. I've just started going through reading his biography here. And it's just very convicting and very edifying, really. And so in a sense, his days are prolonged and his influence is still being felt on this earth. And that's the same with a lot of godly people, the famous ones and the unfamous ones. I mean, I think if you live a godly life, you have influence on people that you have no idea of, that you have met that are watching your life. I think what we need to see, too, when we look at these incentives, because he gives commands in the first verse, and then incentives, length of days, long life, verse 3 and 4, he says you'll find favor and high esteem. I think these incentives he's given us here, he doesn't just say, do this because I say so. 
And sometimes a parent will do that when a kid's not old enough to understand. You just do this because I say so. If I explained it to you, you'd never get it anyways. But God doesn't say that to us. He says, I want you to do this to keep my law and learn my commands and obey them, not just because I say so. He's telling us it will benefit us, won't it? He's saying, listen to me. This is a father. He's saying, listen to me. Listen to my law. Listen to my commands. And see, when you do that, I'm telling you ahead of time, see where they will lead you. Long life, prosperity, peace is what you'll have. And, you know, when, when it says peace there, that's that word it says at the, in verse 2. Length of days, long life, and peace. That is the word shalom, peace. But that word to a Jew, it meant more than just peace, like a lack of war or a lack of fighting. What it really means is a wholesomeness, a completeness, a soundness, a contentment, good welfare. That's what shalom meant. It would include peace, but it's just a lot bigger than that. And he's saying, and that really is what everybody really wants in this world. That's what they're trying to get. They're just doing it the wrong way. And God says, if you'll just keep my law, keep my commands, that's what will bind loving kindness and faithfulness, attributes of God, bind them around your neck. He's saying you'll have everything that you or anyone else could ever desire in this life. He's saying, listen to me. See where I'll lead you because the world's doing the same thing to us, isn't it? It's begging us. Listen to us. Listen to us. Follow what we're saying. Practice the laws we're giving you to practice. And God's saying, why don't you look and see here? I'm showing you where I'm leading you. And why don't you just have enough spiritual maturity to see, okay, whatever it is you're into, whatever it is you're following this other world, look and see where is that going to lead you to? What end is that? What's the promise then there? It's generally not good. Here's the thing he's telling us. He says, verse 1, my son, do not forget. So we have to learn and not forget the law. And that means, that's not just a matter, yeah, I read through Proverbs three years ago, and I got it all down. There is no way. The learning never stops. You could go to seminary for the rest of your life, and you'd still be learning. Anybody that's honest, in fact, it seems like the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. That's all of us. That's all of us in here. And we have to keep coming back to it, don't we? And reading, not neglecting our Bibles because, well, I'm just so busy That's something we don't want to have to end up saying in the end, isn't it? We just need to make time to get our priorities straight, but not just read it. We need to meditate on it, or I'm saying we will forget it. Trust me. That's just what happens. We don't meditate on God's law and the way he wants things done and wants us to live. The law of the world will take over. It will. Even though it says God's law is written on our heart, the world has got this spiritual eraser that it is trying to get on our heart and rub out everything that is there. That's the way it works. And that's why God says in verse 1, let your heart keep my commands. Because that word for keep means to guard. And he's saying let your heart, it doesn't just mean to keep as far as doing it. That would be part of it. But what it really is saying there, what that Hebrew word is saying is, God is saying let your heart Guard my commands. He's saying guard it like Fort Knox. Because every day, I'm telling you, it's the way it is. We just don't realize it a lot of times. But every day there are thieves trying to break in and steal what God has deposited in our hearts. 
And believe me, it is more valuable than the Golden Fort Knox trying to steal our length of days, our shalom, our wholeness, our completeness, and our years of life and peace. And that's why back in 423, the next chapter over, you don't have to turn there. It's a famous verse we've quoted quite a bit. Keep your heart, the Lord says, with all diligence, for out of it are what? The issues of life. Out of its spring, the issues of life. And that 423, where it says guard your heart with all diligence, the literal Hebrew is this. It's guard your heart with more than all guarding. That's literally what the Hebrew says. Guard your heart with more than all guarding. Because that is a figure of speech that was used for somebody that was a guard. They're saying, you take care of this prisoner, he is a bad dude. And the last thing we can have is this guy running out free. He needs to be kept. You need to keep him secure. And your life is going to depend on you keeping this prisoner under guard. And God's saying, we need to treat his word like that. That no matter what, our life is at stake if we let his word get erased from our hearts. It really is that serious. That bit vigilant we need to be with his commands, his law, and his word. If we want the full life of his promises, that shalom is peace, contentment, and wholeness. The question is then, how do we get it? He's saying that's what he promises, if you'll keep my word and all that. The first thing we have to do that we've just looked at is we have to treasure his word don't we? Treasure it like gold. Then the next thing is, which takes us down into verse 5, is we have to take what he's taught us and what we're treasuring and put our trust in him. And we sing this song. We know this. Everyone in here knows this verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. Now, typically, we tend to think and apply that verse to trust in God for the promises of healing, meeting our needs, getting answer to prayer. And that's fine. That's totally legitimate. No problem that that's what it's saying. Shouldn't we always trust God at all times for those things? The Bible teaches that from cover to cover. But what I think Solomon is talking about here, it includes those things. But I think what he's saying is much more than that. It includes... Trusting God to obey the wisdom that we find here in Proverbs. Trusting him with what we find here, that's the context of what we're reading. We're reading Proverbs, and I think you don't have to get far away from that book where we're going to have to trust him when he gives us instruction, which we'll get to eventually, on how to handle money, how to handle people, how to handle our tongue. We have to trust that if we obey him and do those things, because it's going to be counterintuitive to our flesh and what the world does, that that will bring us wholeness, peace with God, length of days, all of those things. Obviously, this wouldn't just apply to Proverbs. It's the whole Bible, isn't it? Obviously, it would be the whole Bible. But when it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding, we all know this, I hope. That doesn't mean that we just shut our brains down and don't think. And we just have whatever the Spirit puts in our head, that's what we're going to do. We're just one of those people open that way. That's not what it says when it's saying, don't lean to your own understanding. Because people that operate like that, they end up driving down the highway with no clothes on. We had somebody years back that happened with somebody here at our church because the Lord, the Holy Spirit directed them to do that. I mean, that's like way out there. But it actually happened here. Not here. It was the other building. 
He's not saying that, that we just take our minds out of gear. What he's telling us, lean not to your own understanding, is when, when the Bible is telling us to do something, no matter what it is, when it contradicts what we think makes sense or what we want to do, we just have to trust in the Lord and obey what he says. That's what he's saying there. Trust in the Lord with all thy heart. Lean not to thy own understanding. I already gave one example of where that would be the case. The Proverbs eleven twenty four. You think to meet this need, I'm trying to save money to buy a car. Not me, but for instance, somebody says I'm trying to save money to buy a car and I give all this money away. The, the temptation is I can't do that. I'll never be able to get my car. I'll never have anything. And I'm, I worked hard for this money. Why give it away? And that's where you just have to say, hey, wait a minute. I have to trust in God that what he says will come to pass and lean not to my own understanding. But does that mean because it also the book of Proverbs will talk about using discernment and wisdom. You just throwing your money away left and right, seeing how fast you can get rid of it. Is it saying that, though, too? It's not really saying that because you do that and you will be a pauper and a beggar. We need to be generous, but we also need to have discernment. But. Like I said, that's where we don't want to lean to our own understanding. And the promise then is, in all your ways, when you acknowledge him, in everything you do is what it's saying. You're putting God in everything you do. It says he'll direct your paths. And path is a big word that has been used all the way through Proverbs 4. Proverbs 1, 2, 3, and 4 is telling us repeatedly that we're all on a path. And if we're in here tonight... We've been taken off the broad path and put on the narrow path. Not narrow in a bad way, but that is where our safety and security is going to be found. Proverbs 2, if you just go back to that, it tells us that if we seek wisdom, he will protect that path. And look what it says in Proverbs 2.8. It says he guards the path of justice and preserves the way of his saints. And look down in verse 11. It says discretion will preserve you, understanding will keep you to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. So he says he'll keep you and protect you. Proverbs 2 is saying that. God will keep you on that straight and narrow and protect you and keep you and keep you from following, getting off that path, following the wrong people. Proverbs 3, what we just read there, he's telling us that he will direct our paths. Proverbs 2 is saying, I'll keep you on the path. Proverbs 2 is saying he will direct our paths. Verse 6, all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. And we looked earlier at Proverbs 4 and it tells us there that he will perfect our paths. The path will become brighter and brighter, more perfect. We'll be more perfectly walking in his ways as we continue on it, brighter and brighter. So the question is, how does that happen? How does that happen where we're protected on our path, directed on the path, and the path gets more perfect? Does it just happen by osmosis or does that just happen by accident? And that's where we get to the crux of the matter with this verse 5. It says that we have to trust in the Lord how. That's how it happens with all of our hearts. And that means a full commitment of our hearts. Because that word for trust there, it means you're taking something. You are leaning all your weight on something, trusting that it's going to hold you up. That's what that word trust there means. It means you're leaning on it with all of our weight. It's not going to collapse because if it collapses, whatever it is you're leaning on, then so do you. So most of us come in here because you all have your chairs that you've sat in many times. You're not in another one, you know. You just get in your chair that you come in here. You don't even think about it, do you? Is anybody in here tonight where is anybody nervous? 
and having someone else sit in their chair first before they got in their chair to make sure it wasn't collapsed. When you sit in that thing, you think about it, you're leaning all your weight on it, trusting that it's gonna hold you and trusting that it's still there from the time you decided and made the motion to bend your legs and sit and actually sat. Because I've seen it, I'm sure you guys have too, I've seen it where somebody has sat in a chair that wasn't reliable and down they went. And I've also seen it where somebody went to sit down and someone had slid their chair out to help them out and hadn't put it back yet. And I mean, that's kind of painful. What's he saying? We got to trust in the chair with all of our hearts. Commit your welfare into its hands. Isn't that what you're doing when you sit in the chair? Trusting that it is not going to let you down and it's going to be there. And we can say confidently, God will always be there. He will never pull the chair out and then laugh. He will never do that to us. When he says we're to trust or commit our lives or our loved ones or anything we need into the hands of God, he says we do it with all of our hearts. That's a total commitment. And that's not the same as prayer. If you would, turn back to Psalm 37. I want to talk about this, trusting Him with all of our hearts, this total commitment. Look at Psalm 37. First six verses. Psalm 37. And it says in Psalm 37, beginning in verse 1, it says, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. And here's what I want to hone in on. Verse 5, it says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Here's what we're doing when we do that. We're trusting him and committing something to him means we are leaving it in his hands. We're taking this burden, this problem, whatever this, this child that's wayward or a loved one that's not saved yet. And we're not carrying that burden around. We are rolling it off of us onto him. We're committing it to the Lord, leaving it in his hands. And if we do that, what does he say he will do? What does he tell us there in verse five? New King James, I have it says he shall bring it to pass, doesn't it? Other versions say he will do it. Another version says he will act. And another version I read added, he will act on your behalf. So you don't have to. Whatever this situation you're facing, that's a burden, it's a problem. He's saying, don't carry it away. Commit it to the Lord. He'll take care of it. That's the promise. He will bring it to pass on our behalf. So let me illustrate it like this through the Bible. What does it mean to commit a problem, our health, a loved one to the Lord? You go back to Joseph. Potiphar's wife is coming to seduce him. And here's what he told her. He says, look, my master does not know what it is with me in the house. And he has committed all that he has to my hand. He's committed, Joseph said, all that he has to my hand. And then you just go a little bit further in the story after he's in jail and the Bible says this, but the Lord was with Joseph, showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison and the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. So let me ask you this. Both of those men, Potiphar and the jailer, they committed everything 
that was of value to them into Joseph's hand. Do you get the impression or do you think they are worrying, they're fretting? Potiphar's looking over the books every day, every hour. Let me check on you, Joseph. And the other guy's all worried about the prisoners coming in there, checking on every cell every hour. Do you get that impression? I don't think so. They committed it into his hand, entrusting him that he's going to take care of everything. And why was that? Why did they do that? Because they saw in this man that he was faithful, that he was honest, and that he was trustworthy. Or those guys wouldn't have committed anything into his hands. It says of Jesus in John 5, 22, it says the father judges no one, but it says he has committed all judgment, committed all judgment to the son. And why is that? The book of Revelation says that Jesus, the son, is the faithful and true witness. He's a reliable witness. All judgment can be committed to. He's not going to mess it up, obviously. We know that. But that's what it says. And listen to this. Acts 27, 40. Paul was at sea. They're going to take him to Rome. You all know the story. He gets in that huge storm. But listen to what it says. And it says, when they had taken up the anchors, they committed themselves unto the sea. Now, that's a picture of what it means to commit yourself wholly to something. Because it says they cut those anchors off and they committed themselves to the vast ocean, trusting that that ocean's going to take. And so what did that mean? The ropes were cut. There's no going back. They've committed everything, their lives, their well-being to what? To the sea. Or you could say God's providence. However, that they committed everything. That is what God is asking us for. That's what he's saying here in Proverbs 3, 5. Go back to that. That's what he's saying. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him, it says, and he will direct your paths. This is what A.W. Tozer had to say about that committed faith. He says, pseudo faith or faith fake always arranges a way out in case God fails it. Real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift substitutes. For true faith, it is either God or total collapse. And not since Adam stood up on the earth has God failed a single man or woman who trusted him. Tozer said that. Now, you all ought to amen now. I didn't write that. I'm just writing what he said. I'm going to read it again just because I like Tozer. He's good. Pseudo-faith always arranges a way out in case God fails it. Real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift substitutes. For true faith, it is either God or total collapse. And not since Adam stood up on the earth has God failed a single man or woman who trusted him. And that's what it says at the end of Joshua, doesn't it? There has not failed one of his promises. And that's true. Tozer's saying that you're putting everything, that's what you do with your chairs, isn't it? You put your, the welfare of your bottom to that chair, that it's going to hold you up. Because if it doesn't, then you're saying, okay, then I'm going to experience some pain. I'm taking that chance, if you want to put it that way. But God, it's not taking a chance, is it? And that's what the word trust means. Actually, it means to just sprawl yourself out like you're doing a belly flop and you're trusting that you get down there, it's all going to work out. That's what it means to sprawl yourself out. You guys have heard the illustration of the guy. You, you see this guy going across this lake and he's all spread out, inching his way across. And all of a sudden, here comes some guy in a wagon with horses going across. 
And the one guy, he just didn't trust that ice. The other guy, he knew how thick that ice was, just went right on across, no worries. But that's what faith does. It just commits itself and knows that that ice is that thick. God's ice is that thick. It's going to hold you up and you can trust it. That's what it is. And I think the key here is, though, it says trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. You got to know the person you're trusting because people I don't know or people I don't know very well, I don't trust them. I don't trust them that much. I don't think Potiphar and the jailer, I don't think they trusted Joseph right away. But after they watched him and they saw him in action, they realized something. They realized this guy is honest and trustworthy. I can put everything I have. I've tested this guy. I can put everything I have into his hands and he will not let me down. And how much more they did that with the man, how much more should we do be able to do that with our Savior and God Almighty? I was talking to somebody about this the other day. We don't not do things or do things because of fear. We do things because we know God loves us and he is willing to bless us. We trust him to be our healer, not because we're afraid if we do something else, we're going to get struck down with lightning. We should trust God because we know he is willing and able and wants to heal us, his children. Amen. And we have to know him that way and experience that. So start with anything to just step out and trust him and move on. That's the way we used to get taught early on. That's fine. But trust him nonetheless. Amen. <laughs> I mean, praise the Lord. He's faithful. So we move on down here to verses 7 and 8, and he says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. And he says, You do that, it will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. This is sort of a warning here. He's telling you, don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't be assured of yourself and your own wisdom, thinking you're Mr. Smarty Pants know what to do and all this. Because that actually is, it's just the opposite of trusting the Lord and acknowledging Him in all your ways and committing everything to Him. So when you do that, when you trust in your own wisdom, and that's leading you down paths that God's never told you to be on, that is trouble with a capital T, isn't it? So, you know, Brother Hamilton used to always talk about the song, Frank Sinatra's My Way. Listen to the lyrics of this song. I'm not going to read them all to you, but listen to this. This is what he sings, his signature song. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I traveled each and every highway and more, much more than this. I did it my way. Yes, there were times, I'm sure you knew, when I bit off more than I could chew. But through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out. I faced it all, I stood tall, and I did it my way. And he ends with this, For what is a man, what has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels, and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Well, let me ask you, how wise do you think old Frank was with that? Because that is one of the most popular songs of our time. 61 million views on YouTube. 61 million. And yet, if you look on the comments, which I did underneath it, these are some of the common responses. 
to that song. I did it my way. Not God's way, my way. People would say, I want this played at my funeral. Someone else, I want this to be the last song I listen to. Now that is sad, isn't it? But I'll tell you, I found this one in the midst of all of that. This one guy wrote, this one man, he says, whoa. He said 7,000 people didn't do it their way. They kneeled. And I thought that was good because Frank said back here, he says, to say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. He's like, I'm not kneeling to anybody. But this guy's like, hey, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. There were 7,000 people that didn't do it their way. They kneeled. Amen? What God's telling us here in these first 10 verses, he's saying, trust me, I'll direct your paths. Fear me. He's saying, do things my way. I'll give you health. I'll bless you. You'll be whole. And the last thing he says there in verses 9 and 10, you honor me. He says, I'll supply all of your needs. Honor the Lord, verse 9, with your possessions, with the first fruits of all your increase. And so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow, it says, with new wine. And so we honor God. That word honor means we give him the respect and the esteem that he is due by the way we use all that he has given to us. We got to remember, it says in Deuteronomy that who is it that gives us the power to gain wealth? It is not our physical prowess. It's not our mental. It's not our planning, not our strategy. Any of that is it. Deuteronomy says you better remember it's God that has given you the power to get wealth. And everything belongs to him, doesn't it? And he freely blesses us with what we have. To show that, we honor him and esteem him by giving him back. It says there, the second part of that, with the first fruits of what we bring in. And that is always the best of what you have and the most costly to give away. We tend to, when we get money, we like to honor ourselves, don't we? <laughs> what we're going to get is the first thing we think. But he should be the first one we honor, shouldn't he? The Lord, that's what he's telling us there. He should be at the top of our financial priorities. And that doesn't matter how old you are. So that doesn't let a five-year-old off or a 55-year-old off, does it? If you got income coming in, you should be blessing the Lord. Any kind of income, it's not yours. If you're saved, you've got to give it back to the Lord somehow. And you all know we don't ask for money, never have, never will. Unless there's a need out there, and the thing is, just that everybody, however you want to do that, you need to honor the Lord with your increase. That's what he's saying there. And he says if you do that, he'll give you back more than you can handle. That's what he's telling us there with the end of that barns being filled and vats overflowing with new wine, those blessings. When he's saying that, do you think it always has to be financially that way? It really doesn't. Honestly, I would rather be rewarded spiritually. I would. Now, if I had a financial need, that wouldn't make me mad, but I'm saying, bless me spiritually, Lord. Let me help somebody out and let me get paid back that way. That would really be what I'd like. The rich man, he messed up. Luke 12 made a major blunder because rather than blessing God and others, he only thought, like I said, of honoring himself. He said, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And the mistake that guy made was financially, he thought, in every other way, he thought he controlled his own destiny. I bet you Frank worked at his farm. Probably helped him out there. But God said to that man there, what did he say? He said he was a fool, didn't he? And Jesus said, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Jesus told us this is what our attitude should be toward hoarding money. 
in Luke 6, give and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your bosom, for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Here's the question to end. Do you want the Lord to direct your paths? Do you want God to make your paths smooth is what it's saying. He'll make your paths smooth. I mean, I sure do. And he's telling us here in these first 10 verses that we need to learn his word, put our trust in in the Lord who gave us that word, fear the Lord and do things his way and not our ways, and then honor the Lord by using the wealth that he's given us. It's his wealth for his glory. That's what he's saying. And boy, oh boy, there's a lot of blessings to go with all of that. And to do that, it doesn't take a college degree, a seminary degree. All it takes is simply what we have right there in verse 5, right in the middle. Just someone that is willing to trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lead not to your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he'll do it. He will direct your path. Amen. Amen. God's faithful. Okay, well, let's pray. Father, we thank you once again, Lord, for your word. I just ask you'll cause it to make an impression on our hearts once again, Lord. I ask you'll cause us all to look in your book of Proverbs and to have ourselves refreshed, Lord. And maybe you can show us where we've gotten off the paths of righteousness and you can get us back on there. I just ask you, Lord, you'll give us all hearts for your word that will hunger and thirst more than anything, Lord, more than for anything else in this world that will hunger and thirst for righteousness, and then you will fill us. That's your promise. Just ask you'll do that for us, Lord, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.